This evening I would like to speak about the heart of wisdom. What we are engaged in here, whether or not we maybe realize it or understand it, is essentially a process and a practice that is concerned with discovering what it means to be alive. To discover the heart of wisdom in our life. And there are many ways we can approach it, many vehicles that support us in this exploration, in this seeking to discover what it means to be alive. And one that I feel is of incredible support and benefit is our relationship to the natural world. For myself, my sense of spirituality, before I even had any clue that that word might be meaningful to me, my sense of spirituality was very much bound and connected with a sense of relationship to the natural world, to nature, and a sense of being part of that natural world, part of it all. My very first spiritual practice, again, I wouldn't have, I would have probably run a mile if someone had suggested I do a spiritual practice. But nonetheless, looking back at it, I can see that when, as a, uh, as a, as a teenager and a young adult, moving out into life, and my weekends I would travel into the, into the woods, into the, the bush, the forest in New Zealand, and uh, would sometimes find myself hugging trees, that this was in fact a, a practice that had a very deep sense of connectedness and of relatedness to something larger, something deeper than my day-to-day activity seemed to reveal. And I remember that the first night I ever spent in voluntary solitude, which is different than finding myself alone because everyone has left, but where I actually, and we've probably all done that, or had that, but where I actually decided, okay, I'm going to go off and be by myself and see what happens. And this very first time that I did this, I was driving through uh, the Coromandel Peninsula in the um, North Island of New Zealand, which is beautiful native forest covering most of it. And uh, I just stopped at some point, not quite knowing why, I found a path and walked off into the woods with my sleeping bag and a mat. And I found there this grove of kauri trees. The kauri tree is a, uh, a tree found only in New Zealand and a rather incredible being, I think is the only way one can describe them. They, the oldest recorded kauri is four and a half thousand years old and uh, um, the, the largest still living takes several, if not dozens of people to reach their arms around it. I'm not quite sure how many. And uh, I found a grove of these trees, these amazing, vast, powerful beings, and I spent the night sleeping out. It was incredibly difficult, I remember. I found in that sense of being by myself, and for the first time I think I discovered that I didn't really like how I was living my life. I didn't really like a lot of who I felt myself to be. And in that first night of voluntary solitude, out there in the nature, with the trees, for all that I discovered, this rather poignant reality, 
I equally felt an immense sense of support and gratitude for the presence of those trees, that sense of their vast canopy high above, just sheltering me as I slept out in the forest. The natural world can teach us many things. It has a lot to offer us. There's something about it that's just big. Basically, it's big, really big, vast, immense, larger than our mind can possibly stretch to grasp. We don't often actually allow ourselves to let it all in at once because the mind can't quite do it and keep a grip on what it thinks is the way things really are. But what is it to stand under its starlit sky and just look up at that range, the vastness, the distance? You know, science gives us all this information about just how far away those little flickering lights are, just how big, how incredibly big and vast this universe is. And to just stand there and to feel the sense of both being humbled by how tiny and insignificant we are here, just for a brief flicker, our life glows in the firmament. The existence of this whole planet just a flicker in the universe. And yet at the same time as we're humbled by that, there's something exalting, there's something exhilarating and something uplifting about realizing that we are part of this vast thing, a small part to be sure, and yet part of something so amazing, mysterious and grand that there's something quite quite beautiful in that that speaks to us of perhaps our own immensity of possibility. And I once heard of a practice which I find a rather wonderful thing to do. You might like to try it sometime, maybe tonight if it's clear. That one can just lie on one's back on the ground looking up at the starlit sky and you know, we have this idea that we're looking up at the sky. Well, actually where I come from in New Zealand, from there, this is the bottom. And we are hanging suspended over this vast empty space. This vast emptiness with the occasional little spot of matter in it that we call the universe. And we're hanging there. And we somehow take for granted that we don't fall into that vast empty space. Somehow the earth holds us. Somehow the earth holds us to, to it in a way that we don't just fall. If it wasn't for what science chooses to call gravity and we therefore believe we know what that is because it has a name. If it wasn't for that, we would just disappear off. And one can just imagine as one lies there on the ground looking up, just imagining oneself suspended over this vastness. And what an amazing thing that is, that this is our condition. Even as we walk upon the earth, we're hanging, suspended above the vastness of the universe. And it kind of it does something rather useful to our perception, to the way we have of looking at things, of thinking about things, that, that just kind of shakes them, that kind of 
takes apart the normal structure of our way of interpreting and relating to the world and just leaves it slightly shredded or in tatters perhaps. Not in a harmful way, but in a way that actually reveals something, reveals something to us. A sense of vastness, a sense of a different perception of the way things are. And I recently read a lovely story uh, with regard to how our perceptions can differ about the way things are. And the story regarded a a wise Chinese hermit, a a Taoist master in fact, who uh, spent much time meditating as we have been here in in this retreat. And he was one day sitting in his sitting in, in, in the hut that he lived in up on a mountain and, there, and he was sitting there unclothed, naked when there was a knock on the door and he was sitting in deep meditation and the, uh, the door was knocked on and then came this delegation from the uh, Confucian council in the local town who'd heard about this strange old character up on the hill and wanted to make sure that he was sort of not having any bad influence on the local people so they came to check him out and they came in and saw what was happening and they were shocked and they said what are you doing? we want to know why are you sitting here in your hut with no trousers on? and he said this is what you think from where I'm sitting this whole world is my hut this hut is my trousers And what I want to know is, what are you doing in my trousers? (laughs) Perhaps he just likes a loose fit. And suddenly our perception is shaken and we suddenly realise, oh, what's so different in his way of articulating and understanding that reality? This whole world is our heart the place where we make our home, that offers us shelter and nourishment. And in the meditation practice, as we go through the day, as we feel ourselves, sometimes (laughs) despite our own inclinations, beginning to open into our experience, despite the sometimes that we'd actually almost rather not, as we, as, we start, as we keep practicing, we become sensitized, we become open. It's almost as if our very senses, our very, you know, the apparatus that we have, the equipment that we have for contacting this world, starts to become more sensitive, starts to become more open. It's no longer dulled and numbed by the constant sort of stimulation and the constant um, sort of stuffing of our eyes and our ears and our experience with more and more and more. And in that fasting we become sensitized, almost a fasting of the heart that we do in retreat. That we're not so full, so busy, so constantly feeding at the sense doors. That, that there's a sense of, of an openness and a sensitivity that comes to us. That sometimes we feel almost too sensitive. And yet at other times when we feel at ease with that sensitivity, what we find is that we start to be touched by life around us simple things, ordinary things that we've seen a million times in our lives suddenly maybe speak to us in a language that resonates with our heart and we might just be outside and we see a dewdrop and and that little glimmer of light shining through it just somehow catches us and, and again speaks to us in a way 
that we feel that we're deeply communing with this thing. Or it perhaps is a leaf on the path, and we just see it, and it's just leafness, just as it is, maybe even dry or rotting, and yet there's something about it that just moves us. It might be a flower, it could be a simple stone. It might be someone else walking rather exquisitely, carefully in meditation as we pass them. Or it might be even we just happen to look down and we notice there's a hand sitting there. We wonder if someone's reached from behind us to wave at our face. Because we just see the hand. But whatever, it might be that we just see something and that it touches us. We feel moved. We feel a depth of connection revealed in a simple moment. In a moment where we're touched by life in a way that we, that we feel that we're part of this, or this is part of what we are, or what we are and what this is, is of the same, because otherwise it couldn't speak to us with such, such profound depth. It couldn't speak to us in a way that the very heart of our being quivers at the touch of that opening, of that connectedness. And we have the sense that, that somehow we have a relationship to this thing, to this experience in this moment that is deeper than we've perhaps allowed ourselves to dare imagine. Whatever it might be. And yet, of course, this isn't always what happens for us. Sometimes and it's not that this should happen for us, of course, either. It may, it may not. At times, all sorts of experiences come. And amongst them is equally the experience of at times feeling disconnected, feeling that we're somehow apart, removed and separate from life, separate from nature, that we feel ourselves to be somehow an alien in the natural world, and that the very presence of human beings somehow defiles the naturalness of the wilderness. And sadly, some human activity can certainly have a tremendous effect on us. But there's the sense we feel of being disconnected, of apart from. And often in that, it comes with a sense of somehow doubting the validity, the okayness, the rightness and the naturalness of our being here. That we feel how somehow it's wrong. That maybe I am a mistake. That, you know, it's, it's all a, a horrible error. And the suffering of our life is the punishment for that mistake. Sometimes we interpret it in that way. And yet, we can equally sometimes sense a being part of life. Sometimes we feel part of it, and sometimes it actually speaks to us of that sense. Which, in the poem Desiderata, there's a beautiful line that says, Be gentle with yourself, for you are a child of the universe, like the birds and the trees and the stars, and you have a right to be here. Just that sense of the rightness of our presence here, in whatever condition we find ourselves, just as the trees and the birds, they just have a rightness, an okayness, not, it's not some sort of arrogant right to stand here and push everything else out of the way. Kind of like an ownership right, but a right of legitimacy that's born of our presence here. 
that needs no more to affirm it than our presence here. And we may be just touched by the benevolence of life that offers us air and water, that nourishes us. You know, without the oxygen on this planet we would be alive for just a few moments, minutes. Our, our systems are so sensitive that if the temperature was to drop a few degrees lower than it is, than its range, or a few degrees higher, if the temperature in our body was to drop that much, we would cease to be able to live. And somehow yet this earth is one in which for us we are able to survive here in this really limited range of temperature we can live in. With this really limited range of things that we can breathe. You know, we just we kind of take for granted that we're really rather fortunate that we can breathe this stuff. If we were in water, we'd be in serious trouble. And equally a fish that lives in water would be in serious trouble on land. And yet we don't notice just how much we've received. This very life, the precious beauty of it, the tender vulnerability of it, that is nonetheless an incredible gift, an offering that we receive, our very life. And in failing to see that, in failing to recognize that, we, we can find ourselves sometimes weighed down, entangled by a, an underlying sense of bitterness or disappointment, that it's not quite it's not quite what we wanted, it's not quite what we expected, it's not quite the way we would like it to be. Even if it actually is getting better, or we've managed to achieve, or to find much of what we wished for, somehow there's easier the sense of, but it's not quite perfect, is it? And, and almost, it, it can even go beyond a sense of sadness or bitterness with that, to, to even a feeling like, well I deserve, that it should be the way I wanted and, and we can even almost feel betrayed or let down by the fact that life hasn't brought to us what we seek from it it hasn't given us what we expected that in this sitting that I had such high hopes for after the last one I thought it was all going so wonderfully and surely I was going to you know, find out the meaning of life the next time round and then all of this is my body and my mind doing their old story and we feel like, oh no, do I have to do this again? Why? Why? We ask ourselves sometimes. And it's because we've forgotten just how much we've received. Just how precious it is, this existence. That in that moment we've taken for granted. And yet we forget that because it is so challenging at times. We can experience such intense you know, at one level we want to be sensitive and connected and yet at another level there's a big part of us that's saying well yes, but not to that not to this, not to my life because it hurts sometimes it touches me, it sort of grabs my heart and squeezes it and shakes it and, and it hurts even though, even though the hardness of our heart is being almost moulded and massaged back to life it's painful while it's going on and we don't really like that. And that pain sometimes we just can't make sense of it. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to fit. Our mind cannot give itself around why this needs to happen. All it is saying to us is, no, I don't like it. And sometimes in that situation where we can't make sense of the struggle and the pain of our life, to not try to, 
to not try to figure it out. We don't need to know the reasons. But sometimes what we can find as an immense support is to turn to the natural world, to turn to nature for refuge in this life. There's a beautiful poem by the Irish poet W.B. Yeats called The Stolen Child. And I'd like to just share the first and last refrain of the poem because it speaks to this condition, I think, beautifully. The Stolen Child Come away, O human child, to the waters and the wild, with a fairy, hand in hand, for the world's more full of weeping than you can understand. And it concludes, And so he's come, the human child, to the waters and the wild, with a fairy, hand in hand, for the world's more full of weeping than you can understand. That sense of the vastness of suffering in this world that we cannot comprehend, that we cannot hold by ourselves, it seems. We are overwhelmed by it at times. That there's something that we don't understand and that sense of to, to go hand in hand with a fairy, to that which is of the mysterious things of life, the inexplicable, and certainly fairies would seem to come into this category. Who knows? whether they be or not in this world. But to go with that sense of not knowing into the natural world, the waters in the wild, for the world's more full of weeping than we can understand. And Ajahn Buddhadasa understood this well. He was a great forest master. I think I mentioned him already. And he was once asked, how do you respond to people who come with such great and deep suffering in their hearts that must come to you? And he says, you know, I surround them with metta, with loving kindness. And then he lived in the forest and I send them out into the forest and I leave them there until they realize that they're part of it. This process where we actually come to realize that we're part of life and that for all that life seems to weigh upon us more than we ourselves can hold, in discovering that we're part of it, we realize we don't have to hold it by ourselves. I was recently teaching a retreat in France, in the uh, foothills of the Pyrenees, where I have the good fortune and great joy to visit twice a year to lead retreats. And in this retreat we were camping outdoors, sitting on a hill, poking out of the out of the, the oak forest there, rather beautiful location with a view across the hills and valleys to the high Pyrenees. And there was a woman there who spoke of her experience, having reflected on these themes, as I've been inviting you to at this time. And she was suffering incredible grief for the tragic loss of a dear friend. She's in her early 20s or mid-20s and he was a little younger. He died in a tragic accident, falling off a, off a building. And she'd been grieving incredibly painfully for some months. And she was just walking among the trees, then suddenly it occurred to her, to th the thought just came to her mind, what would the trees think? 
What do the trees, how do the trees feel about the fact that my friend has died? And it came to, oh, the trees would be sad too. The trees are grieving for his death as well. And suddenly she reported that sense of just being held, supported by the trees that were grieving as well, that could hold a grief that seemed larger than she could bear. And in that she was able to bear her part of it. And she found and described this to be remarkably transforming. Not that the grief went away, but the sense of it being too much for her to hold dissolved into the world that was holding it, equally as it was holding her. And this natural world that holds us, that we are part of, we're not just part of it, we are of that nature. We're not like a separate part of, we're an inseparable part of it. We are of the nature of all that lives. Our bodies are made of food that has grown in the earth, that is born of earth and water and the fire, which is, air, which is the sunshine and the air, which brings nutriment to the plants in the form of carbon dioxide that they need to grow. And all of this that, that is born out of life's existence, out of life's process, is what makes up this very body, this body that lives sustained by oxygen, that one moment before we have breathed in was within the very cells of a plant. And that's kind of nice. You think, oh, we're sharing this with a plant. It was equally within the lungs of somebody else a moment before you breathed in. We kind of think, hmm, don't know about that. Not quite such a pleasant thought that we're sharing the same air and I've been in here for half an hour now and starting to get a bit stale. But, you know, it's not just that we're sharing this air. It actually, it doesn't just go into our lungs. It's there in the very cells of our body and then it passes out and into the cells of another's body. What does that say about how permeable we are to each other? About how the idea that our skin is what is where we stop is just one way of looking at it. To see that this, this life just is doing its thing. We don't, we don't breathe ourselves. You know, we don't sit there, I'm breathing me. Breathing just happens. We put food in our body and what happens? It digests it. You swallow the food, there's nothing you can do from that point that will digest it. And it will grow this body out of it. It's remarkable what sits on your plate at tea time, at the meal, becomes this body. And have you got a clue how it does that? Can you tell it I'd like to grow a bit more here and a bit less there? No. It's kind of silly, isn't it, to even think it. It has its own intelligence. Now even just something as simple and ordinary as sneezing, when the body decides it's time to sneeze, it takes over. It says, you know, it doesn't matter if you don't want to sneeze and bother all the yogis on the retreat. I'm going to sneeze and you're coming with me. <laughs> and whew, sneezing happens. And fine if it should happen. Have you ever tried to do that by yourself? <laughs> A sneeze expels air at over 100 miles an hour from your nose. It's quite remarkable. And you can't do that by yourself. And it tells us something about life that's living through us, that's living in us, that we are of, but we are not the owners of. And yet we are not apart from. Spiritual life, the journey of the heart. This is the journey of seeking peace, seeking well-being, 
seeking understanding in life. And there's a point in that process where we come to realize that we cannot do this by ourselves. We can't do it as some separate isolated entity trying to get it for me. And yet equally nor can anybody or anyone else do it for us. Nobody can fix it or make it right for me any more than I can do that for myself. And it seems a bit of a paradox. seems like a bit of a problem. In fact, well, I can't do it. I've tried and it doesn't work. Nobody else can do it for me. That's kind of clear because, you know, otherwise someone with wisdom and compassion would probably have done that by now. Now the Buddha would have saved us all. But that wasn't the case. So what to do? What to do? We're asked to look deeply into our lives. To make that looking the foundation of what we give our life to. The poem by a Native American elder, Red Hawk. The time comes when it is easier to die. We have to go deeper inside, like a tired miner chipping through stone. We have to dig even when we have had enough, and it is no longer worth it to get up out of bed. The morning is cold, the grey clouds move in, like a flock of dark crows over a picked field. That is when we have to go deeper, through another hard layer of pain. You have to be relentless to make it in this place, because it will be relentless with you. It will never stop beating and grinding, wearing you down with one more thing gone wrong. Friends will die, or their nerves will fail. Women will cease to be thrilled with you, and your sorry efforts to hold it all together will come to nothing. You will still tremble in the leg, go grey and dim in the face, leak more every year into your yellowed shorts. Don't be in a hurry to pack it in. The time will come when it is easier to die than to dig. The art is to find the gold before death finds you, and then to sit there in the heart where you cannot be taken, while death storms and rages all around you, stealing everything in sight, but left only holding a bag full of bones. To find the truth of life before death finds us, and to sit there in the heart where you cannot be taken. What does this mean? What is this suggesting? What is this asking of us? Reflecting, reflecting on our life, we can see that we are, there seems to be a kind of a current or a movement or an energy that flows through it. And that energy could be described as having the character of a, a, <laughs> a restlessness or a relentless seeking after something. Something else, something other. Some other place, some other time. The sense of something that's missing or lost or incomplete or needed that 
seems to be there in the very core of our being that drives us to look for to look for that which we believe to be missing that we need to find that which we believe to be wrong that we need to right that which we believe to be broken which we need to fix and this movement seems to run through the core of our being and yet we see it we find ourselves exposed to it in meditation we can feel it going on we don't necessarily know what it's all about but we begin to understand its effect a couple of years ago I was uh, on the telephone to a friend and just chatting in fact can't remember now something to do with business guy a house which seems to be a lot of what I talk about when I'm not here and as well as when I am um, and I was just talking on the phone and fidgeting with my um, just fidgeting as I was speaking and just put my hand down to just touch where my wedding ring is as I often do and sort of fidget with that uh, and it wasn't there and I just felt this place where my wedding ring usually is and there was this gap and this thought oh no and I, I, I sort of put, covered the mouthpiece and called out to my wife Catherine said Catherine don't tip the dishwater out I'd just been washing the dishes before this phone call came thinking you know could be the loss of the ring which obviously I was quite attached to um, and, and, and so I finished the phone call and I started it wasn't went through the dishwater it wasn't there and I was looking, walking around the house and I was just feeling this place where I could feel where that ring was supposed to be it was like this little indentation around my finger you know where it's sort of pale and soft and sticky a bit underneath the ring and, and just oh where is it what have I done I've lost it oh where was I today when did I last see it and then after this had been going on for a little while Catherine looked at me and said it's the other hand <laughs> and I was there going like it's gone it's gone it's not there it wasn't there it was here all along that sense of something lost of something missing appears only because we're looking in the wrong direction only because we're looking in the way that our habits and our world have suggested we should look but in fact what we're looking for will not be found there any more than I would have any chance of finding my ring by looking on this hand or looking anywhere else I could have spent a lot of time looking for that ring we could spend a lot of time in our lives looking for something that we think is missing is absent or is lost but what would it be to say no maybe that's not the way maybe looking looking in the way we've been looking so far is not going to solve this mystery is not going to reveal that which we seek for to experience and to examine our experience right now here we are this is our life this moment is what we have what is going on right now we've mentioned this process that we experience of senses, sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touch and thoughts and feelings going on in a way in which in some quite amazing way we're conscious of this or there's this know, knowing of it this conscious awareness of all of this happening 
And all this that's going on is really attractive, it's really interesting. We're kind of looking at it mesmerized or repelled or attracted. It's like, wow, would you look at this stuff, my life, we think. Would you look at it going on? In the meditation we start to see it more clearly and of course we can understand a lot from looking at it. It's important that we see it and understand what's going on. But while it's rather attractive and compelling and also kind of useful, and we can learn from it, it's also rather exhausting to keep being drawn into this world, into all of this going on. And we can actually, in meditation, just stop and almost take a step back within our, within our being. Almost just, rather than being drawn out, drawn into, drawn towards, or equally pushed away from what's going on, which we might notice sometimes when we open our eyes at the end of a sitting and we're quite still in, in our body, in our experience, and there's that sense of almost being drawn out into the world. And I see those cartoon characters, <coughs> cartoon characters with their eyeballs on springs going boing! And we have a sense of what that's like energetically to be drawn out. But to actually just settle back in, to settle back into our experience, resting in that quality of simply acknowledging that it is known consciously in this moment. That awareness that reveals experience and that equally reveals itself through the experience that is shown within it. We have the habit and the tendency to only see one aspect of what is in front of our eyes. Just as if we look up on a clear blue sky and we see some clouds, which is, I guess, pretty much as close as we get to a clear blue sky here. Um, some blue and some clouds. And we look, and what do we see? We tend to look up and say, oh, there's some clouds moving through the sky. Or at night, we look up into the sky at night. What do we see? All these points of light. Or you sometimes create interesting shapes and image, constellations, pictures in our mind out of them. But do we notice the backdrop to the cloud, which is simply the expanse of blue sky? Do we notice the backdrop to the starlight, which is the darkness, that deep, inky blackness that is empty of anything, and yet by its very presence is what reveals the stars? Have we noticed that? Have we noticed how our mind goes to the sort of the things that are standing out rather than the background that reveals them. It's like we go to a movie, you know, go and watch watch movies. I've been probably watching a few since you've been here, but uh, it's a little more obvious when we go to the movies in the cinema. And what's going on? You know, what's the bare experience from a meditator's point of view? It's a bunch of colours on a screen, moving colours. It's a bunch of sounds, vibrations in the air, hitting our eardrums. Colours to the eye, vibrations to the ear. But the inner experience is there's all these people, these colours. And these colours are doing things and it's either really funny or it's a bit scary or it's exciting. And you know, sometimes we get so involved in it that we're really upset for some of those colours because something's really difficult happening to them. Or for some of those colours we want to say, look out, look out, you're in danger. These colours on a screen. We don't see the screen. The movie does not reveal the screen. That white, flat, blank, even space in which the movie is 
projected. And yet without the screen it wouldn't happen. We wouldn't get that experience of the movie. We couldn't see a thing. You project a movie into the sky, what happens? Nothing. As we explore what it means to be here, we start to see that the stillness which we perhaps touch, which we perhaps explore and cultivate is a not a stillness that is born of absence of movement, but a stillness that is born of being unshaken by the movement that is occurring, that has the spaciousness to encompass all that moves, that which moves through us in the form of experience. And we see that not just does the stillness of our presence accommodate all of that, but it's actually the very ground and potential for it. It's that which enables our life to move is the stillness in which we receive it. But just as silence is not somehow the opposite of sound or the absence of it, but it's almost like the raw potential for sound to arise. In the stillness of listening, in the absence of sound, we just hear the subtle vibration. That a bell has the rather wonderful character of amplifying that vibration of silence. That's why it touches us in the way that it does. It's actually like silence magnified rather than sound. In a, in a funny sort of way. And of course it's sound as well. But it's like silence and sound are related and that sound is actually silence taken form, silence taken birth, taken energy and life of its own, so that we know it. And in it the sound reveals the silence, equally as the silence reveals the sound. Just as the awareness of conscious presence is what reveals the movement of life. And yet equally that movement of life is what reveals the knowing of it. While everything that we observe and we experience, everything that touches our sense doors is of the nature to change and move. There is more to that more than that to the truth of life. Dharma teachings, teachings that speak of wisdom, that speak of truth, speak of change, and equally speak of the changeless. One time when I was uh, practicing in uh, India, in the monastery at Buddhagaya, the, the place of the uh, Buddha's enlightenment, I had this really interesting experience and rather sweet experience with the, the puppies who live at the monastery. And uh, I was actually at the monastery for the second year in a row, having gone the first time there, the prior year. And both times really enjoying the, the, the presence of these small puppies who, um, the monasteries in Asia are something of a sanctuary for all living beings and therefore lots of living beings come to live there because it's safe and there is food and they're not attacked or harmed. And there's these little puppies who, um, dogs being creatures like all of us, uh, puppies would come to be. And the puppies would be running and playing amongst us during the day and they'd, you know, seem to be of great concern to them that our practice went well so that they would sort of come and sort of 
slip between your feet as you're walking very slowly and mindfully to make sure you are really paying attention or you know if it looks like you didn't really want to have to wash your dishes after lunch they'd come and help you by licking them um, and if you fell asleep they might even wake you in time for the next sitting by sort of cuddling up and nuzzling into your face with their big fat sort of warm tongues and wet noses and I just really love them they're just a real joy the, the beauty and the vibrancy and the, they would play and run and seem dance with each other and with the retreatants and the chickens and the, the cats and everything else in the monastery and then it struck me I'd been there for a I don't know I must have been a couple of weeks on this particular retreat that I'd been practicing as I said having come back again after being there the year before suddenly it struck me I thought these were the same puppies as last year I was sure these were the same puppies as last year they were just the same puppies and, but I realised I oh, know they're not and all along I'd believed that these were the same creatures but they're not they couldn't be of course I think gosh they've grown up by now these are new ones and yet although the puppies had changed because puppies are of the nature to change puppy nature is unchanging something about what they were revealing was unchanging and one could call it puppy nature the nature of what it is to be a puppy and just as all our experience changes just as our very life is held within the frames of birth and death is revealed within those apparent polarities just as this is true at the same time it's not true at the same time this is not the deepest truth of life to be open to all our experience as we've been inviting you to do to open to it all to allow it to come, to move, to receive it consciously to allow it to pour into our being, so to speak, unresisting and equally to pour out of our being without holding as it does, moving through to bind ourselves to none of this to take hold of none of it at all to not define ourselves by what we are experiencing by what is happening so what is it to open? in the midst of this life to the very fact that what is happening is experience revealed that what is happening is consciousness, awareness simple presence in which life unfolds a, this in a way world shaking and <coughs> profoundly mysterious tangible and yet inexpressible presence that is what is happening this, this beingness which is conscious in its beingness what is this? what is it saying to us that this is what is happening? what is it asking us about our ideas of who we are or of what this world is? to ask those questions, who am I? what is this? to ask it with the very depth and heart of our being as we sit here in the face of our life to not seek answers 
but to open our mind to the question and to be willing to stay in that condition demanding no answers nor any escape from the challenge that presents us and in that in that open-hearted questioning our heart can be touched not so much by answers but by understanding that needs no answers we perhaps start to sense that life is a flow it's a movement life is in movement, in motion it's its nature to move it comes and it goes and yet it is received in the dimension of truth that is still it is revealed by the nature of being which is unmoving the peaceful dimension of life that is imminent, that is present that life could not exist without and life cannot exist apart from what is most deeply true perhaps we begin to see that it is not that we are somehow moving through life it is not that we are engaged in some kind of a journey but that in fact life is moving through us life is moving through the stillness that is truth the stillness that we are the truth that we are this is life and the heart of wisdom is a recognition of something so deeply familiar that we have failed to see it so intimately close to the heart of each moment that we've taken it for granted all along that we haven't stopped to notice it to realize its profound significance that this truth has always been so that we've never, could never be apart from it or outside of its reality a truth that reveals an intimate and effortless connection with and embrace of our life and all of the life that moves and flows in its waves in its turbulence and its still running depths its quietly moving depths all of that of our unfolding life is held and embraced in this truth and yet is bound not at all by any of that is bound not at all by the movement of life in the poem The Four Quartets T.S. Eliot said we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time through the unknown remembered gate when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning at the source of the longest river the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree not known because not looked for but heard, half heard in the stillness between two waves of the sea quick, now, here, now, always a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything 
and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Again, we shall not cease from exploration and the end of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know that place for the first time. A condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. To return to where we are and to know what that means. What this asks of us, what this asks of us is a condition of complete simplicity in which we are willing to hold on to nothing, to hold to no thing, to no idea, to no position. And in that non-holding, in that total surrender, into letting go. The truth of the Dharma teachings which reveal to us that liberation is born of letting go are very close to our hearts. This truth speaks to us in the place where we hold to no thing and where we realize that all the holding and the struggle has only ever created the appearance of distancing and disconnecting us from that truth. That we have never, in fact, ever been apart from it or it from us. Rumi, the great Sufi poet, put it rather more simply and directly in his poem I have lived on the lip of insanity wanting to know reasons knocking on a door it opens I've been knocking from the inside
may all beings come to trust their place in this life. May all beings be touched by truth's presence. May all beings realize life's freedom. 